you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John, and we'll be in John chapter 8. We're taking a fairly large section here, verses 31 through 59. You know, we live in, in a time right now that's known as postmodern. And basically what postmodernism is, is where people don't no longer believe an ultimate truth. They don't believe in the truth, they believe, believe in a truth. It'd be kind of like this, what I believe is my truth and what you believe is your truth. And so it's becoming more difficult to, to share the concepts of Christianity, that there is a true and living God who is sovereign over all things, who's created all things. And so in our culture, that's a difficulty. But during Jesus' day, that really wasn't a difficulty in that they believed in deities, they believed in gods. You had the pagans that believed in multiple gods, and you had the Jews that believed in the one and true living God. But the disconnect with the Jews when it came to Jesus was that they were looking for a Messiah that would be a political leader, that would come in and overthrow Rome, and so they're looking for this political Messiah. What they didn't realize is Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin, and He came to suffer and die. And not only was that an issue, also there were those that claimed to believe in Him, but they did not have saving faith. They believed His words. They were amazed by His miracle, but there was no commitment. There was no reality to their faith in Him. Now, we see that today, both in and out of the church. People who claim Christ, but they're not true disciples. And in the message today, what Jesus is going to do, He's going to confront some of the Jewish leaders in the temple. And some of the Jewish leaders, it seems like, at least it says in verse 30, that there were some that believed in Him. Matter of fact, I don't know if you have your Bibles open, but you can look at verse 30. And it says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe. And it says, in him, in him. Now, there is a distinction that we'll see between verse 30 and verse 31. And as we work our way through the text, there are going to be those that basically claim they believe, but we'll see by their actions they're not true disciples. So let's take a look at the text. Verses 31 through 36 says, so Jesus was saying to those who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. So what is the evidence of a true disciple? First thing, a disciple of Jesus continues in the truth and will experience freedom from sin. A disciple of Jesus continues in the truth and will experience, you might say, freedom from sin's dominance or control. For the true follower of Jesus, the Word of God becomes precious, and victory over sin's dominance, over sinful habits, becomes part of the sanctification process. So we begin here in verse 31, and it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him. And when you read when it says the Jews, it's typically talking about the Jewish leaders. 
And if you need to remember in context where Jesus is, Jesus is in the temple. He's in the court of the women. And if you remember the story, Jesus uh, was in the temple teaching, and a number of the scribes and Pharisees, they brought a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Remember that story? And what they were hoping to do was to, to catch Jesus, to trap Him into doing one of two things. One, they were hoping perhaps He would say, yes, stone her. And if, they, if He said that, stone her, keeping the law, then it would show that He wasn't, compassion, that wasn't compassionate towards the lost. If He said, no, don't stone her, then He could say, see, He's not the, the Messiah. He didn't keep the law. Either way, they thought they had Him. But what did Jesus do? In verse 7, He says, he who is among you without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And as we know, everyone that brought that woman walked out, and she was left alone with Jesus, and he forgave her of her sin, and he told her to sin no more. But then he makes a statement in John chapter 8, verse 12. This is what he says. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this started a debate with the remaining Jewish leaders that were there in the temple. And he also tells them during this discussion that unless they believe in him, they're going to die in their sins. Now, for the purpose this morning, there is a difference than believing Jesus and believing in Jesus. There is a difference in understanding who Jesus is and having a committed faith in who he is. Now, it's not so clear sometimes when you look at the English, but it is more clear when you look at the Greek. We know that in verse 31, it's the phrase, and I mean, in verse 30, it says, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. But in the next verse, and here in verse 31, it changes and it says, had believed him. That difference then in him and believed him, I think, is the difference between saving faith and what we'd call intellectual faith. Intellectual faith is an understanding of who He is. It's like when you, when you speak to somebody maybe who's come out of Catholicism, you say, hey, who is Jesus? They say, Son of God. They have an intellectual understanding of who He is, but they may not have a true trusting faith in Him. And there are many like that in the church today, and there were many like that in Jesus' day. They have an intellectual belief, but not a saving faith. You know, this past week, I had to go see the physical therapist. I had my first opportunity to be hurt by the physical therapist after surgery. And so before you go in, they have you do these exercises. So I already had met her, and she knew that I was a pastor, and I'd kind of thrown out a few things to see if I could get the conversation centered around Jesus. So this time, as she kind of laid me on this table to crank out my shoulder, she said, hey, I wanted to let you know I went to a church this weekend with a friend. And I was like, oh, that's great. I said, why? I figured, why not? And I asked her, why'd you want to go? And she said, well, you know, she goes, I've come to the place in my life, she goes, where I'm starting to feel like I, I want to know what I believe. And she had come out of Catholicism, and, and her mother was very active, and she says, but I'm just not sure. So this friend invited me, and I went, I said, so what'd you think? She said, I, I thought it was really neat, the music was nice, and, you know, we kind of talked, and, and I said, um, would you like to know what the Bible says, how you can absolutely know for sure that when you die that you'll be in heaven? She said, yeah, I'd like to know that. And I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, when you die and you stand before God and he asks you, what would you say to him why he should allow you into heaven? What would you say? This is what she said. She says, well, I'm loyal. I'm loyal to my family and I'm loyal to my friends. And I always try to help people. 
And I said, okay. I said, so in your mind, you're saying that God will allow you into heaven. You'll have this relationship with him because you're loyal to friends and family and because you want to help people. Is that right? She said, yes. I said, the Bible says that's not how you can know God. And that is not how you'll be in heaven. Do you want to know? She said, yes. And she went, Urgh. and I said, oh. <laughs> I said, all right. And so I had the opportunity in between heavy breathing to kind of share the gospel with her. Now, she didn't receive Christ as I laid there on, on the table, but she was open. And I think what we're going to see here is that he see, Jesus sees this opportunity, even though these religious leaders have been kind of combating him, there's an opportunity that they might be open. They believed some of the things he said. And so we're going to see this discussion between Jesus and these, these leaders. And the first thing that we'll see is that true disciples... True followers will continue in His Word. Or you could say, will remain with Jesus. Or will continue to follow Jesus. That word continue means to remain or abide. True believers, true disciples, continue to follow Him. Continue to believe. Continue to believe in His Word. Continue to walk with Him. And so what Jesus is going to do, he's going to lay out three, if you will, I might call them motivations, three reasons why they should follow, why they should continue. And the first motivation that we see here is that by continuing in Christ's word, it's, it's going to prove that you're his disciple. And there are a countless number of people that I, I know, and maybe you know in your life, maybe family members or friends, and as I'm walking through the study, maybe you can think of them, and that they've made a profession at some point in their life but you just haven't seen that reality in their life, of a life devoted to Christ. And, and maybe you might even look at your own life and say, I'm just not sure I see that. But Jesus is going to give a motivation here that, that those who continue in His Word, they are His disciples. Now, the word disciple, it translates from the plural of a Greek word called mathetes, and it refers to one who's a learner, a, a follower of a teacher. And He says, if you continue in My Word, then... You are truly disciples of mine. The person who is a disciple of Christ will continue. They will remain. They will abide in Christ. Now, this is in the present tense. So, since it's in the present tense, he did not say, if you continue in my word, you will become future tense. It's present tense. It means if you're continuing with Jesus, if you're continuing to believe and trust in his word, if you're continuing to follow, it's an evidence that you're His disciple, that you're one of His, that there's true conversion that's taken place, that you want to do His will. Now, Jesus has said this many different ways throughout the Scripture. One of them is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. I think it's on the screen behind me. Matthew 12, 50 says, For whoever does the will of my Father who's in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. He also said in John 14, 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The evidence of a true disciple is not what I say as much as it is my life lived out in obedience, following his word, abiding in him. Words are cheap. The reality is our life. Are we continuing with him? The question is, does your life reflect what you say you believe? 
Now, Jesus had already told these leaders there. He said in John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. The person who truly knows and trusts in the Lord, they will want to continue in the Word. That doesn't mean perfection here. There are going to be bumps. There are going to be times where you may fail. But there's a coming back, a repentant heart, a desire to follow after the Lord. Do you see that in your life? Do you see that in that friend or that family member who claims Christ? This desire for Him. So that's the first motivation, that that you continue in His Word. But there's a second motivation, and the second motivation that when you continue, you're going to know the truth. You're going to understand, you're going to have spiritual knowledge Look at verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth, it'll make you free. That's the second motivation there, that that you'll have this certain knowledge of spiritual things. When you received Christ, when, when you prayed the prayer of repentance and faith, God gave you His Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Not that you'll know all truth, only God knows all truth. But that when you read the Word, when you hear the Word preached, when you, when you listen to the Word, when you meditate on the Word, God, by His Holy Spirit, will open up your heart and you'll know the truth. And you'll be sure of it. Assurance is so important for the Christian. Not only that we know Him, but we trust Him. And there's an ongoing development of understanding as we grow in our walk with Jesus Two motivations will continue and also will know the truth, but there's a third one. That truth sets you free. That truth, it it frees you. Free from sin's condemnation. Free from sin's guilt. And I think in the context here, really free from sin's dominance in your life. It sets you free. Truth is free and it, it, it frees us from ignorance And it frees us from being enslaved to sin. This idea of freeing us from ignorance is the idea that when a person comes to Christ, I don't know about you before you were a Christian, but before I was a Christian, I read the Bible for three years. And I had the hardest time understanding what the heck does this mean? I used to tell my wife, this thing has secrets in it that I just cannot figure out. And then I came to Christ. And suddenly it was like, oh, It's like God shifted my mind and suddenly it began to make sense to me. What is that? God was opening and I no longer was ignorant, but He began to help me to understand through the work of the Spirit. I understood the Word of God. Now, these leaders here, they did not understand. As a matter of fact, not only did they did not understand, they could not understand. Why? Because their hearts were hard. They, they might be what you call a natural man. They were enslaved to their sin. One of the best verses that explains this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I think you see it on the screen there. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. Paul writes that they cannot understand why their heart is hard. They're trapped in sin. They not only do not want to understand, they cannot understand. The natural man is anyone without Jesus. It could be a religious person like these religious people here, or it could be just a run-of-the-mill person like you or I, but it's the person without Christ. Their heart has not been opened up to Him. But what I love about the gospel and what I love about the Lord is He's always reaching. 
He's always trying to break through the hard heart. He's constantly reaching in. You know, I, I firmly believe that I am there for this woman because I'm going to share the gospel with her. And that could be you in any situation with a family member, with a friend. God, tag, you're it in that situation at your work. Why? Because he wants them to hear. Now their heart is hard, but he wants to bring in the truth. And what often happens is that a person first, that they're ignorant to the things of God, their heart is shut down, but then God begins to move. And the first thing that typically happens is they begin to understand that they're sinners before a holy God. I don't know about you, but that's how it was with me. I suddenly recognize, uh-oh, I'm in trouble with a holy God. And somebody shared the truth with me about Christ. That somebody was Greg Laurie on the radio. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm a sinner. That's what I shared with this woman. One of the first things I told her is, you are a nice person, but the Bible says you're a sinner, and God is holy, and there's a separation there. And by the grace of God, when the gospel comes in, if their heart is open and they want to receive, they can receive Christ. And they can be freed from sin's control. Romans chapter 6, verse 18 puts it like this. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. The gospel truth, it frees you from ignorance, but not only that, it frees you from sin's control. It's not that we're, we have no sin, but now we can say no to sin. It's not that you become sinless, but you will discover you'll sin less. What is that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and He enables us now to no longer give over to the lust of the flesh, but to lean and trust in the Spirit of God. Well, now, Jesus says this to these leaders. They don't like that. Look at verses 33 and 34, and they answered Him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How about Egypt? How about there in Rome? Anyway, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. See, these leaders, they thought that their ancestry that had ensured their spiritual freedom and their standing before God, they felt secure in their identity as one of Abraham's descendants that somehow they had special spiritual place with God. But they were not spiritually free. They were enslaved. But the freedom that Jesus speaks of right here, it does not come from one's religious identity. It does not come from one's ancestry. This freedom does not mean that a follower of Jesus will be sinless, though. There's always the fight. Remember Paul said, fight the good fight? We fight in the power of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word. But these Jews, they were enslaved to sin. They wore religious robes but the hearts were hard and turned from Christ. And Peter, in 2 Peter, writes about men just like this. Now listen to Peter. This is what he says in 2 Peter 2, 14 and 15, and also verse 19. He says, They have eyes that are full of adultery, that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, promising people freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. These religious leaders were enslaved 
to their own sinful thoughts and habits. But Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That word commit right there, it's called a present tense participle. And what that means, it's part of their nature. It's not just a sinful act. It's who they were on the inside. You know, when I'm street witnessing and I talk to people, one, one example I give, I says, do you have children? If they say yes, I said, did you ever have to train your children to be bad? And they go, no. And I said, why is that? Slave to sin. It's natural in them. It's natural in all of us. And it was natural in these men. And the only way for an unbeliever to be released from sin's grip is to be united by faith with Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Now, Titus... In the book of Titus, he, he gives kind of a, a before and after picture. Listen to what he says in Titus 3, 3 through 5. He says, For we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But then he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love appeared for mankind, he says, He saved us. That word saved us means rescued. Jesus rescued us from sin's dominance in our life. And now He's given us the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and live a life that honors God. And so Jesus finishes His words here with, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. For if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Do you understand that when you came to Christ, you were adopted into God's family? You were made a child of God. You belong to Him. You have a place in the family of God. And it reminds me, really, of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son, most of us know, is you have a son. He wants his inheritance early. And so he takes the money, and we know that he goes to a distant land, and he spends it, it says, on riotous living. I think that's the King James Basically, partying, drunkenness, whatever. And he loses all his money, and he finds himself as a good Jewish boy in a pigsty. And it's at that lowest point, it says, he comes to his senses, and he remembers the kindness of his father. And in his heart and in his mind, he says, I'm going to be his servant. I'll be his slave. And so he makes his way back to the father. And we know the picture. The father is on his porch looking for his son. He sees him a long distance off, and he runs to him. And when the sun comes up, he embraces the sun. But something happened that's very important that really is a picture of the gospel. The father calls his servants and says, bring the robe. The robe is a picture of royalty, and he puts it on the sun. He says, give him the signet ring. The signet ring had the, the family crest where he could do business for the family. And he says, put shoes on him. Slaves went barefoot, but a son wore shoes. He was invited back in. And we're invited into Christ's family. When you have Christ, you're going to want to continue in Him. When you have Christ, you've been freed from the dominance of sin. Now, as I was thinking about this, I remembered the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, many of you maybe have read that or maybe seen the movie. And that was written by Robert Louis Stevenson. Now, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, Robert Louis Stevenson, he was raised in a Presbyterian home, but it's the picture of the natural man, the battle between good and between evil. 
And if you know the story, Dr. Jekyll is a doctor, and he's a good doctor. And he, he sees this, this struggle, if you will, in himself, so he comes up with a potion. And the potion is if he drinks the potion, it separates out the good doc, Dr. Jekyll from the evil Mr. Hyde. And so in the, in the movie or in the book, he, he drinks the potion, but what happens is he didn't know how evil Mr. Hyde truly was. And as you follow that course, what happens is Mr. Hyde takes over, dominates, and eventually kills him. And of course, Mr. Hyde dies because he kills himself. That is a picture of the natural man. It's a battle you cannot win. But the gospel, it's a different picture. It is a battle you cannot lose. Because Jesus won that battle for us. He came in, he fought the fight, he died in our place, and now we can say no to evil, yes to God, and we can walk in victory. First thing, the disciple of Jesus continues in the truth and will experience freedom from sin. Second thing, the disciple of Jesus walks by faith and loves the Lord. A disciple of Jesus walks by faith and loves the Lord. Our love for Jesus, it helps us to walk in His ways. Now, this is verses 37 through 47. It says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear the word my word. You are your father, you're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who, is, he who is of God hears the words of God for this reason. You do not hear them because you are not of God. So he begins right here. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word, it has no place in you. A personal commitment to Jesus Christ is necessary to become a Christian. Now, this idea is alien to many in our culture, and it's alien in that day. What was commonly thought in that day, and there's still a lot of thinking this way, is that your religion comes through tradition. Now, I saw this when I was in England. When we lived in England, I talked to a number of people on the street where their parents and then they belonged to the Church of England. And because they belonged to the Church of England, that meant that they were Christian in their minds. It's tradition. And that's really what you see right here. They think that they're right with God because of tradition, because they're descendants of Abraham. 
But their ethnic descent from Abraham and physical circumcision, it does not count in person standing to be right with God. You must, you must have a true living relationship by faith with the living God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is all over the Scripture, but I'll share two texts with you. In Romans chapter 9, verse 6, and also Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. Let me read those for you. Romans 9, 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Galatians 3, 6 and 7 says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. A true son of Abraham, a true child of God, is a person of faith. Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Do you trust in Him? There's no religious works. There's no tradition. It is Him and Him only. Now, this woman that I was speaking to, my physical therapist, I was really trying to help her understand since she came out of a a religion called Catholicism and she was kind of steeped in the idea that it's what she does that really matters before God. And I was trying to help her understand that it's faith in Him, what He has done, faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. I think she's on the cusp. She's just about there. But these these religious leaders here, they don't understand that. They think because they're, they're born as a descendant of Abraham that it somehow gives them this right place with God. Now, the book of Hebrews makes it very clear. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham walked by faith. And those of us today that are true disciples of Christ, we walk by faith in him. You were bought at a price. You were not your own. Do you trust Him? Do those that you're thinking about in your family that claim Christ, do they live a life that, that demonstrates this, that, that, they, that they're trusting in Him alone? It's not by tradition. It's not by religion. It's based on saving faith. And so what Jesus does is He says, your actions prove that you're not God's. Look at verses 37 and 38. He says, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen my with my father, therefore you also do the things which you've seen from your father. Again, physical descendants of Abraham, yeah, that's true, but they have a different father. Now, he doesn't say yet who that father is, but we know, don't we? Who is it? Satan, right? Now, Jesus is one who knows the father. In fact, he came from the father. He's God in the flesh. He's the son. And so, everything that he says is true, And so you kind of have this banter back and forth. Look at verses 39 and 41. It says, they answered him, said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. Twice he said that. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, 
God. What they do right here is they try to slam him. Basically saying, okay, Mary was pregnant before you were born, before she was married. Ah, you're born in fornication. This is a slam on Jesus. But Jesus tells him, Abraham never tried to commit murder. And we're going to see in just a little while that these guys are going to try to commit murder. He says, I know your hearts. I see the blackness and the sin in you. And the evidence of a person that knows God is that they'll walk by faith in Jesus. And not only will you walk by faith, you'll love Him. Do you love Jesus? Because look at Jesus' words in 42 and 43. Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. The best evidence of a true disciple of Christ is their love for Christ and devotion for Christ. The best evidence for love of Christ is your love for one another. Do you love Him? Is your devotion, is your heart given over to Him or is it given over to the world? Those people that you've been praying for that claim to know Jesus, do you see a love for Him in their life? Is there a seeking after, a desire for the things of God, a desire to know Christ? Or do you see more of a desire for the things of the world, a running after the things of this life? The line, he says, if you know God, you love me. Do you have devotion for me? He's saying, I know the Father. I, I come from heaven. A person's salvation is evident in their love for Christ. Now, Jesus said this right before his crucifixion. In his prayer in John 17, listen to his words. John 17, 25 and 26, he says, Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I'll be in them. When you received Christ and He gave you His Holy Spirit, He also implanted in you a love. It's called agape love. It's a, it's a supernatural love. And you now can love God with a whole heart because the Spirit of God dwells within you. Do you see it in your life? It doesn't mean perfection again. It doesn't mean that you may make mistakes, but there is always a drawing back, always a running back to your Lord. Do you have that relationship? And only the grace of God can break in and offer that to someone. So Jesus says to them in 43 and 44, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father. And then he says it plain right here, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And these gentlemen right there were liars because their father was a liar. And they demonstrated that they were truly of their father, the devil. Now, he had implied this earlier in 38 and 39, but now he says it straight out in verse 44. He says, you know what? Your father, it's Satan. It's the devil. And the way this works is anybody without Christ, although they probably don't know it, their father, they're, they're living for him and they don't even know it. He is the one who speaks into their life. But us that know Christ, 
The Lord is our Lord. God is our God. He is our Father. What does your behavior demonstrate? Who do you really serve? If someone looks at your life, which father are you serving? That person that you have doubts about, that person you've been praying for, where do they go? What's their life demonstrate? Who's their father? Now, Paul speaks about this really clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, and, and this is a very sobering text, so I believe this one's on the screen as well, Ephesians 5, 3 through 8. I want to read it and just, just let the words kind of speak. Paul says this, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Who's your father? Walk as children of light. You've been changed. You are a new transformation. You are a new creature in Christ. Live for Him. You can say no to sin. You can live for Christ. If you stumble, get up quickly. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Keep walking with Him. Walk as children of light. And Jesus ends his thoughts right here in verses 45 and 47. He says, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I speak the truth. Why do you not believe me? He who is, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. As children of Satan, they do not want to hear the words of God. And, and, and the enemy is, is, if you will, keeping the words of Christ from coming in. Their hearts are hard. They're unbelievers. They do not want to respond. But if a person is willing to be open, if a person wants to respond, the truth can come in. 2 Corinthians 3.14 is crystal clear. I believe this is on the screen as well. Speaking about the unbeliever and really a religious person like these guys, it says, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Here's the key. Verse 16 says, But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Have you turned to the Lord? Has the veil been lifted? That person that you're praying for, do you see this openness now to Christ, a change in the very nature and who they are? But these Jewish leaders weren't willing to turn. Their hearts were hard. They hated Jesus. They wanted to kill him. Amen, listen up. A little over a week, Valentine's Day is coming. Just a reminder, Valentine's Day. Now, Valentine's Day is supposed to be the evidence of our love for either our spouse or that significant other, right? And I want to give you a wrong way and a right way to do Valentine's Day. I'm going to give you the wrong way first. Okay, I'm going to go surprise my wife. So I go out and I buy a, a bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolate. 
And I decide I'm going to surprise her. So I go up to the door and I knock on the door and she opens the door. She says, honey, you shouldn't have. I said, no, it was my duty. <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. I, I had to do this. Men, trust me, wrong. What I should have said was, honey, how could I not? I love you so much and what you've done for me and this is just a small token of what, it, what you mean to me. But many people approach Christ out of duty. I got to do these things for God. It's duty. But he says love here. His disciples love him. It's devotion. The motivation for why we serve God and seek God, the way we walk with Christ, it's a devotion. It's love. Do you see that in your life? Because the disciple of Jesus walks by faith and loves the Lord. A disciple of Jesus continues in the truth and will experience freedom from sin. And here's the last one. A disciple of Jesus honors God and keeps His Word. A disciple of Jesus honors God and keeps His Word. Now, Jesus is the ultimate example that we have to follow. He is that perfect human being and will never live up to His standard, but He kind of lays out the standard for us, and He always honored the Father. Look at verses 48 through 57. It says, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered and said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he sought and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself, and he went outside of the temple. So you have this debate here, and it's coming to a close. And Jesus had just told them some truths. He told them that their father was the devil, and that they want to kill him. And what we're going to see here, though, and this is a beautiful picture of the gospel, even though these men hate him, twice Jesus is going to give them an opportunity to respond. Twice he's going to offer them, if you will, grace. But they won't listen. And we're going to see kind of a pattern. And it goes like this. First, they're going to blaspheme the Lord. Second, he's going to respond to their blaspheme with truth. And third, he's going to give a, a graceful invitation. This is going to happen twice. But on the third time, again, they're going to criticize him. He's going to speak the truth, and then they're going to want to kill him. Let's take a look. Verse 48, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, you need to understand what they're saying here. I think there was going around something that was being spread that Mary, Jesus' mother, had had relations with a Roman. 
And because she had relations with a woman, that Jesus is a Samaritan by birth, meaning a Gentile. That's who Samaritans were. They were Jews who intermarried with Gentiles, and then those that were born were known as Samaritans. And I think, again, they're slamming, they're blaspheming Christ. And they also say, and, and by the way, you have a demon. In other words, you're possessed by a demon. Understand, this is full blasphemy. This is God in the flesh. And they're blaspheming our Lord. But this is not the first time they've done this. They did it from the very beginning of His ministry. In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, it says, The scribes came down from Jerusalem saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and He cast out demons by the rulers of demons. This is nothing new for them. But Jesus responds to their criticism and blasphemy with truth. Look at verse 49. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Jesus is the ultimate example of one to follow. And everything He did, He did to honor God. He says, I've not come down to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me in John chapter 6. And because Jesus is our example, we're to honor God as well. We're to honor Him. And I'll tell you the best way to honor Him. You've got to know Him. The way you honor God is to know Christ. You cannot honor God without knowing Christ. If someone says that they honor God but do not believe in Jesus, they don't know Him. And they are not honoring Him because God has made it plain. It is only through Christ that we honor God. John put it like this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. I think it's on the screen. He says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So those that you know that, that claim to know Jesus, are they honoring Him? Do they really know Him? Because not only do you honor Him by knowing Him, again, it comes back to our life. What do people see? What do you say? How do you live? Again, no perfection. But the ongoing dynamic of the true Christian is to honor Him, to, to want to follow after Him. Not only does He speak the truth, but now Jesus offers grace. Look at verse 51. <clears throat> he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Those leaders right there are in that camp of anyone, right? This is an offer. This is always the gospel. And I want to encourage you with those family members and loved ones you've been praying for, your friends, do not give up. Offer and offer. If anyone, if anyone will believe in me, keep going. Keep praying. When the doors are open, share Christ. Don't become discouraged in well-doing. Fight the good fight. Offer Christ. And what they do is they blaspheme him a second time. Look at 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. You say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? So again, in verse 48, now in 52, again they say he's possessed by a demon. And then they say, Who do you think you are? Do you think you're more important than Abraham? They're basically saying, do you think you have more authority than Abraham? They understand what Jesus is saying here. He is making himself above Abraham. So what does Jesus do? He answers him with truth, 54 and 55. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. 
and you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Another way that people will know that you're a disciple of his is you'll keep his word. Do you obey the Bible? Do you obey the word of God? The evidence of our faith, the evidence of our love for Christ is that we'll obey his word. We'll obey the word of God. But these, believe, these leaders here, they were liars because they claimed to know God. They didn't. And Jesus would have been a liar if he said he didn't know God, but of course he's from God. He is God. And so he does know him. He's from the Father. But again, he offers grace. And I want you to see verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Their father Abraham, looking forward through his lineage, knew that the Messiah would come from Isaac and on down the line, and he rejoiced. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 records that Abraham saw and he welcomed Christ. He welcomed Christ's day. And Jesus, I think, is offering this again. Your father Abraham rejoiced. You too can rejoice in me. Again, grace being offered. But then they challenged Jesus the third time. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus did not say he'd seen Abraham. He's saying that Abraham had prophetically seen him, had looked forward in time. And so Jesus shares the truth again in verse 58. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's a major statement right there. Jesus right there is making the claim to be God flat out. They totally understand this. This is known as a tetratraton, I can't even pronounce it, tetratraton. Did I get that right? Anyway, what Jesus is doing is using the words of Yahweh in the Hebrew or in the Greek here is egoemi. But by saying that before Abraham was born, I am. It's the same thing that God in the burning bush said to Moses, I am that I am. Now, we know that they understand that he was claiming to be God because of their reaction. Look at verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. Again, this amazing story, this banter back and forth. But what I see in this, and I want you to understand as we're kind of coming to a close, is that even though their hearts were hard, even though they wanted to kill him, Jesus gives them two more opportunities to come, to receive Grace upon grace, let us not forget that we can offer grace upon grace, even to the most hard. You know, I read in, in a book recently a story about a pastor who had this young man who had been attending his church since a child, and he went all the way through high school, went away to college, and then he came back to the church, and he made an appointment with the pastor. And as they sit down, the young man sits down with the pastor, and he says, you know, I've been reading the Bible. And I've determined from my study that, ex, that sex outside of marriage is okay because the prohibition was really more of a cultural mandate than a hard, fast rule or command. He said, look, maybe it was sin for the people of that time, but a lot of things have changed, and I think the meaning has changed as well. He says, I have grown in my understanding. Well, the pastor, of course, listened to that, <clears throat> And he took him to a number of scriptures that explain that, that relationships outside of marriage are considered sinful and the only right relationship in God's eyes is between a man and a woman in the bond of marriage. But the pastor asked a really good question. I want you to hear this. He says, my guess is that you've gotten yourself a girlfriend 
and that you're sleeping with her at this time. Is that true? And the young man said, well, yeah, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean, that, 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 right? He's making excuses to change what the Word of God says to fit the way his life is. And I have to tell you, be very careful, church. Sin will cover the truth. And we'll want to change God's Word to the point, does this young man really know the Lord? He no longer trusts the Word is true. He no longer wants to honor Christ as Lord. He's no longer following in his teaching. He's not even repentant. Does he even know him? Do you know him? I pray you do. Let's close in prayer. Father, the word of God is true. And I thank you, Lord, that you just make it plain that your disciples will follow after you, will follow the truth, that you'll walk by faith and and love you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we, who are your disciples, Lord, we put our faith and our trust in you, and we've been guaranteed eternal life, and you've given us freedom from sin's dominance. Help us, Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let us here from Calvary Chapel honor you by our actions as well as our words, and may people be attracted to you through our witness. May you do this great work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I please have you stand?